kingdom of the planet of the apes has arrived in IMAX. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. everyone we begin tonight's readout with news from both ends of the capitol joe biden is meeting right now with 10 republicans who are pushing a compromise bill for covid relief and by compromise i mean a package that's about one third the size of biden's proposal much more on that coming up meanwhile there is new reporting on the days leading up to the deadly maga insurrection at the capitol the basis for the former president's second impeachment trial which begins next week a comprehensive new report from the New York Times covers the genesis of that siege, revealing that it wasn't some spontaneous uprising, but a more coordinated campaign by the former president and his allies. That campaign was rooted in a lie that was so convincing to some of his most devoted followers that it made the deadly January 6th assault on the Capitol almost inevitable. The report also sheds new light on a growing list of people and organizations involved in planning, promoting, and financing the rallies that precipitated the insurrection. They range from right-wing crackpots like Alex Jones, Ali Alexander, and the pillow guy Mike Lindell, to Tea Party organizations who've embedded themselves inside the Republican Party since the Obama era, to establishment groups like the Republican Attorneys General Association. We're learning that the list also includes the heiress to the public's supermarket fortune. According to the Wall Street Journal, her money paid for the lion's share of the roughly $500,000 rally at the Ellipse, where the former president spoke. But even before they converged on Washington, all of these forces had rallied around the single goal of stopping the so-called steal. And as the Times reveals, some made overtures to violent extremist groups like the Proud Boys and others at the forefront of those events. The lead organizers had even promoted themselves in a video wielding firearms as they built their radical coalition. Separately, some appeared to know that something violent was coming. On the day before the attack, the man who bragged about making Breitbart.com the home of the white nationalist alt-right, former Trump campaign manager turned White House political strategist Steve Bannon, whom Trump has since pardoned on felony charges that he defrauded Trump fans of their money, hinted that what would take place would be more than a mere rally. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. Just understand this. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's going to be moving. It's going to be quick. I'll tell you this. It's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen. Okay? It's going to be quite extraordinarily different. And all I can say is strap in. All hell, you say? Well, then, of course, there were the words of Florida man himself just minutes before his supporters sacked the Capitol. You're going to have to fight much harder. We're going to walk down to the Capitol and we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. 
And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. Despite the bloodshed of that day, loyalists to the former president continued their attempts to sabotage the certification of Biden's victory. As we learned, then New York mayor turned embarrassing TV lawyer Rudy Giuliani called Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama, asking him to stop or delay the count of electoral votes. More ominous were the obstacles put in place that prevented the National Guard from quickly restoring order. The acting secretary of defense actually restrained the D.C. Guard from fully deploying, according to a memo issued just two days before. There's also more on the last ditch legal maneuvers the former president made before January 6th. The Times reveals that the Supreme Court lawsuit filed by the Texas attorney general was secretly drafted by lawyers close to the White House. Let's turn now to Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island, who serves on the Judiciary Committee. And Senator, I think we've got to talk about the coordination and the money. On the coordination side, we're seeing that this siege was not spontaneous. It appears to have been planned by a variety of groups from the Tea Party on, including maybe people in the White House. But then we get to the money. And I wonder what you make of the fact that these big donors, like the public's uh, you know, supermarket heiress were putting money into it. Well, I've been um, asking the uh, FBI and the Department of Justice from the beginning to treat this as the kind of investigation where you do the work of looking to see who's behind it. You follow the money, you look at the groups, you follow the funders, you figure out who the kingpins and the instigators are. Uh, it looked at the beginning like all they wanted to do was to uh, arrest all the characters who were smashing the place up and running around in the Capitol. Uh, but there's a lot more to it than this. And I think little by little, they're starting to look into it. You're absolutely right that it is essential to understand this as an organized effort, not a spontaneous one. But, um, but I want to note that um, I'm just saying to, to someone who's telling me in my ear that the senators who were meeting with the White House, I'm just letting our viewers know, have just come out. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But I want to stay with the, the Senator White House right now. Um, you have funding this operation. There they are. We can see them there. They're coming out and they're speaking now. That's Susan Collins of Maine speaking. Um, we know that the public's heiress has not only been a donor to what happened on the 6th, to the, 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 the rally at the Ellipse. She helped fund that, put like 300 grand into it. But she's also a big donor to Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida. She's turned around and gotten this sweetheart deal to distribute the vaccine. So that's her. Um, and then you've got the things that the president was saying, right? So they're, 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 they're getting this thing funded. We know there's going to be a rally there. We know that it looks like the Department of Defense told the National Guard to stand down and let whatever was going to happen, happen. And then you have the president saying, after the siege happens, that's what happens when you, when you hurt me. He tweeted, these are the things and events that happen when a sacred landslide election victory is unceremoniously and viciously stripped away from great patriots. That's one of the tweets that Twitter banned him for. Do you think that we have more than just an impeachable offense, but criminal collusion between the funders and the president and maybe even the secretary of defense at the time? Look, I've been a prosecutor and I don't like to get ahead of assigning guilt until the investigation is complete. I think the important thing is that we do a thorough investigation. 
That's why I asked to have the investigation by the Senate Ethics Committee of Senators Cruz and Hawley. That's why I've been pestering the Department of Justice to take this investigation seriously. And in addition to all the funding that you mentioned, Joy, there's also the dark money funding. We don't know who that uh, who those donors are. But behind RAGA, the Republican Attorney General's Association, is a rule of law defense fund that takes money from anonymous donors in big amounts. And we need to dig into all of that. And the public and particularly law enforcement need to understand exactly what went on so they can apply the law of aiding and abetting. They can apply the constitutional standard of aid and comfort. They can apply conspiracy law or even RICO law, depending on where it goes. And let me ask you this, because you've been really great about this. You do these talks, you know, when you're when you're in the United States Senate, and you talk about dark money. Are we at a point now where we have to fear that our democracy is being undermined and the undermining of it is being financed by billionaires, by dark money, with the goal of undoing democracy and establishing something other than democracy to their benefit? Yes. While Trump was a flamboyant offense to democracy, there was also this creeping uh, insinuation of dark money um, into our political system. And it is probably just as dangerous as Trump's flamboyant excesses. This is not the knife in the eyeball. This is the uh, cancer in the body. But you got to get both out if you want the patient to be healthy. It is a frightening thing. Um, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, um, you follow this, um, you know, daily. And I really appreciate you for doing that. Thank you for spending some time with us this evening. Really appreciate your time. Good to be with you. Um, let us now. Cheers. Let us now turn to Katie Benner, Justice Department reporter for The New York Times and Nicholas Rasmussen, executive director of the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism. And Katie, you've been doing incredible reporting. Um, and I just want to ask you, just based on your reporting, how deep uh, do the ties go to what have come to be seen as standard Republican groups, the Tea Party patriots, groups that funded the Tea Party, which we know are a lot of billionaires that wanted that veneer of a populist movement? Um, how deep do we think that the backing for this insurrection went? I think that what we've seen from the incredible reporting by my colleagues who wrote the story that we referenced earlier, that the, the ties are very, very deep. There's a lot of money that poured into the marches that we saw on January 6th that led up to the insurrection. And this is in part because the Republican Party and even really established parts of the party never really believed that things would go off the rails in the way that they did on January 6th. And it's a theme that we saw again and again and again with Trump's presidency, where people were looking at the long game about what they could get from Trump and trying to ignore the more unsavory aspects of him. Here we saw all those elements collide, people hoping they could still get things that they really wanted, power, etc., without a disaster. Clearly that wasn't going to happen, and now we're left with a party that is trying to figure out what it will do now, because Trump has proven with the insurrection we saw on January 6th, with his post-presidency behavior, that he still controls not only the money, but essentially the party itself. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. What a day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. 
On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. You know, and Mr. Rasmussen, uh, thank you for welcome to the show as well. You know, when you have an insurgency in, let's say we're not talking about the United States, we, we start to think about the ties that insurgents have to political forces, to governmental forces, potentially. That's what this looks like. Malcolm Nance has talked about the fact that this is an insurgency. And that means it's getting funding from somewhere. It's getting political backing from somewhere. Don't we have to start thinking about this effort to overturn our democracy in those terms? Well, Joy, you certainly have a large pool of potential, what you would call perhaps domestic violent extremists, to use a term of art that the Department of Homeland Security used in a, in a bulletin that they issued last week. And that large pool of potential violent extremists who are um, motivated by a domestic political ideology, they are capable of being incited or directed or inspired to carry out violent attacks. And again, as we've seen in overseas settings, when we're talking about foreign terrorist organizations, um, some of the groups that, that fund this activity um, find that they like to keep themselves at arm's length from the violence. They, they, they like to promote the narrative that leads to the violence, but they like to be at arm's length from the violence and then act surprised when um, the logical outcome of some of that, that activity, that, that narrative, actually turns out to be violence, as we saw on January 6th. Let me play for you, um, Chris Ray, uh, the director of the FBI, testifying before Congress back in September about the threats uh, to our domestic security. What I can tell you is that within um, within the domestic terrorism bucket category as a whole, racially motivated violent extremism is, I think, the biggest bucket within that larger group, and within the racially motivated violent extremist bucket. Uh, people uh, ascribing to some kind of white supremacist type um, ideology is, is certainly the, the biggest chunk of that. You also had um, the new Secretary of State, Mr. Blinken, um, tell Andrea Mitchell today um, that the world is looking at us and wondering if we're fully a democracy. And a great example of that is the Ukrainian president, President Zelensky. He told Axios the following about us. I was very worried. I did not want you to have a coup, shooting, and God forbid, loss of life. It is just that after something like this, I believe it would be very difficult for the world to see the United States as a symbol of democracy in the world. Katie Benner, I'll start with you on this. Are the, are we looking at a Republican Party that is increasingly willing to either look the other way or even utilize uh, militant groups like the Proud Boys for their own political benefit? Well, I'd say we're looking at a Republican Party that still is the party of Trump and that as a leader, he is willing to do those things. You know, we have in our reporting that one of the phenomena that we saw that was so interesting about the violent extremists that came to the Capitol is they felt that they came at the behest of the former president. They felt that they were invited by him. And that is a phenomenon that grew throughout the summer during the racial justice protests as 
you know, the president appealed to groups like militias to basically act as a de facto police force to show up and to show these BLM protesters what justice was all about. They also showed up at polling stations during the election. So we saw a very unusual, it's hard to overstate how unusual this is. Militias like the Oath Keepers, they are generally anti-government extremists. They are anti-government, they're anti-authority. And yet suddenly they felt they had in the White House, not only an ally, but somebody that they could get behind who stood for them. And that's going to be something that's difficult for the Republican Party to grapple with as Trump continues to control that party. And that's my question to you, Mr. Rasmussen. I'll give you the final word on this. If Donald Trump is still willing to and still able to command um, essentially extra governmental violent forces and they still answer to him and then some members of Congress answer to him as well, how much danger are we in? I mean, that was the, the key takeaway from the reporting Katie and her colleagues did over the weekend where they talked about a situation in which you have the professionals, including the FBI director, speaking very precisely and very clearly about where they see the domestic extremist threat residing. And yet you had a Justice Department, you had a Department of Homeland Security that was misdirecting and pointing us in other directions. Look over here at Antifa, look over here at at um, racially motivated violence attached to uh, um, police violence. Um, when instead, what we know to be true is that the, the preponderance of the risk we face of domestic violence here in the United States, domestic terrorism even, is tied to these far right wing groups, including white supremacists, as the FBI director says. And, and the green light that, that, yeah, and that shown. those kinds of groups get from a political leader is something that we not should be comfortable with. A wink, a nod, something that implies that they are acting in accord or in alignment with what the, their leader in, in public office wants. That should be unacceptable. Yeah, indeed. And some of those people are still in the United States Senate and in the House uh, right now. Uh, Katie Benner. Great reporting. Thank you so much. Uh, Nicholas Rasmussen, thank you both very much. Um, and up next on the readout, President Biden's first big test, getting his $1.9 trillion COVID relief package through Congress. Republican senators just finished, as we showed you a little while ago, a meeting with President Biden. They're demanding that he gut his own bill, you know, for unity. Senator Cory Booker joins me next to discuss. Plus, the former president's impeachment lawyers bail on him because he still, still wants to sell his election fraud lies. And a Republican member of Congress admits that the party does just that, traffic in lies. Let's take a look at the last four years, how, how far we have come in a bad way, how backwards looking we are, how, how much we peddle darkness and division. Back with more of the readout after this. As we sit here right now, President Biden just ended a nearly two-hour meeting with 10 Senate Republicans on COVID relief. There was no agreement, but Senator Susan Collins said it was productive. It was an excellent meeting, and we're very appreciative that as his first official meeting in the Oval Office, uh, the president chose to spend so much time with us in a frank and very useful discussion. Two weeks ago, Biden unveiled his $1.9 trillion proposal, which includes a new round of stimulus checks, an increase and extension of the emergency unemployment benefits that are set to expire in mid-March, a bump in the minimum wage to $15 an hour, and hundreds of billions of dollars for state and local government schools, vaccine production and distribution. 
Republicans, under the cloak of unity and bipartisanship, have said no dice to that proposal. Instead, they presented a much, much smaller $618 billion stimulus package. Notably, their proposal does not include a $15 minimum wage or money for states and cities. They're also offering less in stimulus and less in unemployment insurance. While the president is entertaining Republican senators, Democrats on the Hill are prepared to go it alone. Earlier this afternoon, Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Majority Leader Chuck Schumer instructed their respective budget committees to begin the process of reconciliation. That means that they've started the clock on passing Biden's rescue plan with a simple Democratic majority. And joining me now, Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey. Senator, thank you so much for being here. I'm going to put up this list uh, of those who met with the president. Um, and it's a round robin of, you know, your sort of usual suspect Republicans, the Mitt Romneys of the world, the Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski's Mike Rounds was on the phone, Rob Portman. There's no Democrats in there. So it was not a bipartisan meeting. It was a meeting in which Republicans essentially said, throw your plan out and do ours. Is that bipartisanship? Look, I, I have no problem. In fact, I celebrate the president of the United States meeting with people across the aisle to have constructive dialogue. I just want to remind folks that four years ago, that at this moment, Donald Trump wasn't doing that. He was pushing for a 50 vote threshold to throw out Americans health care and the Affordable Care Act. He was moving unilaterally to do a Muslim ban. Uh, he was moving to give the largest tax break, literally blow a trillion dollar hole in our annual deficit to give a tax break that it went majority wise to the wealthiest of people and corporations. And so. I, I, again, I wish we saw this kind of bipartisanship. I'm, I'm happy to have that conversation. But in the worst economic crisis since the World War II, where our economy is underperforming, where it's the most unequal recession in the modern American era, uh, we cannot afford to scrap things that are especially targeted towards the most vulnerable amongst us. We have over 30 million Americans going to the bed food insecure. We have people who are struggling with minimum wage jobs or are slipping uh, deeper and deeper into the trap of poverty and debt. And we have uh, the challenges uh, facing states who are laying off literally thousands and thousands of, uh, uh, of critical workers, uh, firefighters and police and more. So this is the time to act big. And I'm hoping that our Republican colleagues understand that and will come to the table to work with us on a very large plan. Well, you know, and, and uh, you know, I will stipulate that I am far more petty than you or, or Joe Biden. Right. And so that's why I'm not in politics. Um, but but uh, when you read, read me that whole long list of things that Donald Trump came in and did unilaterally, his base has like a, a, a negative obsession with Muslims. They have a negative obsession with non-white immigrants. They have negative obsessions with all sorts of things. And he came in and he said, I promised you I'd hurt those people. Watch me hurt him. The cruelty was the point. He didn't care about asking you, Senator Booker, is it okay with you if I hurt those people? I'm just going to go and do it. Yeah, you have Joe Biden coming in and the people, the 81 million people who voted for Joe Biden voted for help. They voted for help immediately. They didn't vote for Susan Collins to not be concerned about it. And so isn't there an argument that the more effective politics is to let me just play for you I'm, real quick. I'm going to play for you. This is Joe Biden, Senator John Tester and Majority Leader Chuck Schumer saying what they were going to do. Take a listen. I support passing COVID relief with support from Republicans if we can get it. But the COVID relief has to pass. There's no if, ands, or buts. So I don't think $1.9 even though it is a boatload of money, is too much money. I think uh, 
uh, if we're if we're uh, now is not the time to scar- starve the economy. It makes no sense to pinch pennies when so many Americans are struggling. The risk of doing too little is far greater than the risk of doing too much. Senator, the, the $1.9 trillion would include a SNAP benefit increase. It would include more money to get folks to that $2,000. You have a, a child tax credit you want to see um, put in. Isn't it better politics to just pass that and not try to beg Republicans to get on board? Just pass it. I, I don't. Again, we have to pass that. You, you say the tax credit. Let me be clear. He has a cutting of black po- child poverty in this country, Latino poverty, Uh, for Native Americans and nearly for all American children by half. That's dramatic. And so I agree. We we made commitments to these things. Uh, We need to do it. But I I do not want to tell you that I do not want to become a party that uses just Trump's tactics. In other words, let's pass and do what we have to do. But I don't want to shame anybody for sitting at the table and trying to find common ground. And we need to do more of that. But right now, I'm telling you, we have uh, reconciliation. If we have to go to that to save the American economy, to help the a third of Americans who are in the worst economy, some Americans have done really well in this uh, economy, but to save a third of our brothers and sisters in this country who are struggling, these are the things we must do. So I, I'm just telling you, I do not want Biden to be like Trump, uh, but I want him to to pass this legislation with us, uh, but yet at the same time, uh, try to reach out to the Republicans we can and find common ground where we can. And by the way, there's a lot of common ground. I think we're going to get a lot done on criminal justice reform under a Biden presidency. I think we're going to get a lot done on infrastructure. Uh, There is common ground. But I agree with you right now, the the pain in this country, uh, the unemployment, uh, the people who are are don't know where their next meal is going to come from. The people that are facing layoffs. We just lost over another hundred thousand jobs. These are these are things that are we cannot ignore. This great big challenge demands a big response. I, I will I will stipulate that this is why you're in politics, sir, and I am not. <laughs> because I, uh, my goal would just be just pass it and let the Republicans cry about it later. Uh, Senator Cory Booker, but uh, I will hopefully you guys' uh, strategy will work. Uh, thank you very much. Appreciate you being here. Thank Still you. ahead. Uh, the debate, cheers, the debate over the COVID relief bill has been about size and cost and speed. But what about morality? With America's poorest families suffering the most, Bishop William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign joins us on this Moral Monday after this short break. We need to go big. And if we waste some money now, well, we waste some money. But absolutely, we've got too many people hurting and the economy is going to sputter and we've got to get ourselves out of this mess. And it's the way we need to go right now. Believe it or not, that was Trump-loving, formerly Democratic, but now Republican governor of West Virginia, Jim Justice, making the case for Biden's, Joe Biden's, $1.9 trillion COVID relief package. He joins millions of Americans across the country who are calling for action right now. Joining me now is Bishop William Barber, co-chairman of the Poor People's Campaign. And Bishop Barber, I don't know if you were able to hear uh, my conversation with Senator Booker. And Senator Booker is a really good guy. I mean, honestly, he's a great guy. And he wants there to be more peace in the world, right? And so he and Joe Biden, who is also a good man, they want there to be a coming together on this idea of helping people. But we ain't getting that. You're getting Republicans saying, give people just a little money. 
And Biden saying no, want to give him a lot of money and a lot of help. And even this Republican governor, he's now to the left of Joe Manchin on this. How do you how do we come down on this? It's Moral Monday. Give us give us some direction. Yeah, I'm just coming off a call, um, Joy, with tens of thousands of people on the first of 14 National Moral Monday, where we talked about protect us, respect us and pay us. Um, um, SEIU was there, one fair wage. And I'm telling you, people are sick and tired of this now. That 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 governor is right because he's hitting people in Appalachia. That's what he's really saying. But listen, we're about, you know, if you want to be serious, Jesus said, uh, you know, I didn't come to bring a peace. I came to bring a sword when it comes to injustice. And the reality is there was no compromise for the five to six trillion dollars the banks and corporations got. You know, we can't always have this business of compromising on the backs of poor and the people that are hurting the most. And it's not about being like Trump. It's doing what's right. It's passing what needs to be passed and doing what's right right now. People are hurting. You know, we need a full, just, joy, COVID relief. Why? Because we cannot have people who were the first infected, the first forced to go back to work, the first to get sick, the first to die, but then be the last ones to get protected, the last ones to get wages, the last ones to get health care. We know right now, Joy, 39%, only 39% of Americans can afford a $1,000 emergency. We know these things. And I looked at who was in that meeting today. Tom Tillis was in there from North Carolina. Tom Tillis blocked uh, passed the worst voter suppression law in the country when he was speaker, and he never compromised. He blocked vote, uh, um, uh, expanding health care. He blocked votes on living wages. He even blocked two black women from getting a, 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 um, a hearing for a federal judge. You can't compromise with that. That is actually immoral to always be compromising on the back of poor people. The reality is, if we yeah. pass 15 in the union, Joy, 50 million people would be lifted. $300 billion would go into the economy. We have places, and I know i got to stop, but we're like Kansas. Voters voted for a living wage, and then the state Republican legislature overturned it. Birmingham, they did the same thing. The state, these people are not compromising. They are taking prisoners and hurting people, and Democrats have the votes. They need to do what is right, not be like Trump. Just do what is right. Well, the one thing, you know, that sort of the be like Trump sort of argument is, is that the reason that people liked Trump is that he didn't talk like a politician and he said he would hurt the people that they want to see hurt. And he hurt them. You know, he didn't compromise with Democrats as he didn't ask for permission to hurt people. He just hurt them. And his base loved it. Uh, and, and I And I wonder if now we're looking at sort of opportunities for Democrats to help people with the same energy that you saw Trump hurt people. You have John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, now both said the two senators from Georgia. They ran on saying, if y'all vote for us, you're going to get this $2,000. Now we're seeing that it's $1,400 because you already got 600 from the last bill. And yes, the 600 plus the 14 adds up to 2,000, but that's really not the same. Shouldn't Democrats, isn't it the better, you're not a political guy, but isn't the better message to just say, here's the $2,000 and a $15 minimum wage. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I preached the inaugural service and the scripture was repairing the breach. The first things it says is stop unjust practices and do what is right. You got to at least do what you ran on. You ran on 15 the union. You ran on 2000. You ran on uh, health care. You ran on addressing systemic racism. 
and 55 percent of poor and low wealth people voted for you and you got the uh, Senate and the House. Do what is right. And, and listen, 70 some percent of the people want this. Even Republicans, people are hurting before COVID. You have more than 140 million people in this country that are poor and low wealth. You know, I also heard Jordan that as a group that wants to talk about, well, we might do 15, but we'll do it in six years. Excuse me. But what the hell? Six <laughs> years, five years. Then you've got tip workers. They said now they want to write off the tip workers. Well, 60, that's 70% of tip workers are women. They are the people we told to go back to work. 60% of them couldn't get unemployment because $2 and 10 some change doesn't give them enough base income. Six million tip workers lost their jobs. We don't need to pit the tip workers against the regular workers. We need to pay everybody $15 an hour a living now. And it's 57 years old. In the March on Washington, they asked for $2 an hour, which would be $15 today. It is ridiculous for these folk who have health care that they got from the people. They've got these high wages where they, I mean, salaries from working in the Congress and the Senate to then get in back rooms and don't, you know, worse than not having Democrats in the room. They didn't have any poor folk in the room. They didn't have any low wage workers right. in the room. That's the problem. They're treating people like they're numbers and not human beings. And I'm saying to the Biden administration, to Schumer and to Nancy Pelosi, Democrats, do what is right. We can't wait. People were hurting before COVID. People were hurting. And, and, and one study says it'll take 10 years now for poor and low wealth people to recover. Now, it, you know, we, yeah. people don't yeah. have that kind of time. And it's so wrong. If you want to have domestic tranquility, yeah. establish justice. Established just indeed, Jim. Dem uh, Steve Mnuchin didn't uh, add by part uh, bipartisanship. He just went ahead and wrote those checks to those uh, billionaires. And Joe Manchin is more that. angry that Kamala Harris was on TV in his state than he is Come about on. people ha having no money. The governor is to his left. It's wild. Uh, Bishop William Barber, thank you very much. I appreciate you. Um, be safe and well. And up next, at least three attorneys have bailed on Orange Julius Caesar's impeachment defense. You could have did there. After he pushed them to focus on his stolen election fantasies instead of an actual defense to the insurrection charges. We'll be right back. The second impeachment trial of America's most infamous Florida retiree, who's accused of inciting the insurrection attack on America's capital, begins next week. And before the trial even begins, there's already a brand new legal team. NBC News sources confirmed that at least three of Florida man's previous lead defense attorneys walked because he wanted them to focus on unsubstantiated claims of voter fraud. And they like having their bar licenses. And that's really a metaphor for what's going on inside the Republican Party, since those normal workaday lawyers refuse to take up the big lie so the one-term president can continue pretending that he really won the election. Senators, however, will hear a case reciting the big lie, and the lawyers conducting that theater will be typical characters from the Trump cinematic universe. Defense lawyer David Schoen, who previously represented Trump buddy Roger Stone and consulted with Jeffrey Epstein before he died in a federal prison cell, and former Pennsylvania District Attorney Bruce Castor, known primarily for declining to prosecute Bill Cosby for alleged sexual assault back in 2005. And if that sounds like some typical Trumpian tomfoolery, note that that same drama is playing out 
on the House inside the House of Representatives, where some Republicans are more focused on removing Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney from her leadership position to punish her for voting to impeach Trump for inciting the insurrection, then reprimanding Congresswoman QAnon Marjorie of Georgia. Another Republican who voted for impeachment, Illinois Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, has stated the obvious, that his party is trafficking in lies. And he started a new campaign to take it back from the MAGA extremists. And just tonight, The Hill reports Senate Republican Majority Leader Mitch McConnell blasted Margie Q's in great embrace of, quote, loony, loony lies and conspiracy theories as a, quote, cancer for the Republican Party. For more. I'm joined by Sarah Longwell, executive director of the Republican Accountability Project. And Fernand Amandi, a Democratic pollster, my friend, and I'm thrilled to announce tonight that Fernand is now also an MSNBC, newly minted MSNBC political analyst. Congratulations, Fernand. Wonderful to have you both here. Uh, but I'm going to do ladies first on this. Let me go to Sarah first, because as I as we heard this news that Mitch McConnell is trying to stand up for, I don't know, rational people and say that the QAnon lady is maybe out to lunch. My question, as my producers were telling me this, is who has a bigger constituency in the Republican base, Mitch McConnell or her? And my guess is her. What's your guess? Yeah, you know, it's funny that Mitch McConnell uh, called her a cancer because I think that it's actually Donald Trump who is the cancer on the Republican Party. The problem is, is that he's metastasized, where now you have far too many Republicans who believe and are purveyors of the light. I mean, look, people want to talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene because she says all of these crazy conspiratorial things. But what has she been talking about lately? What's been her big conspiracy? It's that the election was stolen. And do you know who else believes that conspiracy? Kevin McCarthy, Josh Hawley, Senator Ted Cruz, and Donald Trump himself. Donald Trump is the leader of this party. And he, he talked to Marjorie Taylor Greene this weekend, and he gave her, according to her, his full support. And if you look at somebody like Kevin McCarthy, he has been more publicly critical of Liz Cheney than he has been of Marjorie Taylor Greene. And that tells you everything you need to know about where the Republican Party is right now. Well, you know, and Fernand, my guess is I don't think Kevin McCarthy believes that. I think Kevin McCarthy is willing to say that. And I think that's a different thing. I mean, you have a party where you have people who nobody really thinks they believe that the election was stolen. They're just saying it because they're enslaved to the former president. You come from a state where your governor is enslaved to the former president. Isn't that the issue? It's, it's that some of the people who don't even necessarily believe this stuff are willing to sell it. Joy, that's exactly right. I mean, they're also enslaved to the fear of a primary challenge. Let's be honest, this comes down to Darwinistic survival, Republican bare knuckle politics. And unlike two weeks ago when Donald Trump was still the president and had the powers of the presidency, what explains this behavior is just this continuing bizarre death wish that the Republican Party has and continues to have. We saw today the signs of an earthquake of what is still to come when former members of the George W. Bush administration announced no mas, can't take this anymore. Seeing this Republican Party now with Donald Trump removed from the scene act this way, we have now left the party. We've seen figures come out of Colorado since the lethal insurrection that was incited by Donald Trump, 
Thousands of registered Republicans in Colorado have left the party. This is the sign of what's to come. And what the Democrats have to do here, Joy, is take advantage of the political moment. They have the power, they have the control, and they have the moral authority. By making these Republicans make hard choices, getting them on the record, making them vote to have these QAnon congresswomen to see if they are going to stay in Congress or not or should be expelled from their committee assignments, putting them on the record, making them uncomfortable. That's the quickest way you are going to see action and try and get some of these Republicans just through the power politics to potentially fold and walk away from Trumpism. And Sarah, to that very point, you know, you had uh, Marjorie uh, Greene tout her sort of, oh, I chatted with Trump and saying, oh, I'm going to meet. So like she's she's waving him like a bloody shirt in front of the other Republicans. That says to me that when the impeachment trial begins, his lawyers, his this new crop of strange lawyers, this lawyer are going to make this a referendum on whether or not each and every single Republican is willing to sign on again publicly to the big lie. In your view, isn't that going to be essentially the death knell for the normal George Bush era Republican Party? Because they're all going to have to say, yes, sir. Yes, sir, Mr. Trump, sir. We believe the big lie. That's what the impeachment's going to be about. Yeah, it's absolutely going to be the new litmus test for whether or not you're sufficiently loyal to Trump. And it's just it's too bad because Republicans have this huge opportunity in this impeachment trial to put a stake through Donald Trump's political future. They could rid themselves of the Trump problem. They just need to vote to impeach him, and that would keep him, and then they could bar him from running in the future. And just the fact that they won't take that shot, they won't take that chance, it shows you that they believe that they can't win without him. But I'll tell you what, they are putting themselves between a rock and a hard place because there are a whole bunch of college-educated suburban voters who do not want to be in a political coalition with Marjorie Taylor Greene. They just don't. Well, this is my question, then I'll, I'll leave it to you for now, because among other great things, you're also a, po- a really great pollster. Is there are can you envision the Republican Party bifurcating into two parties? I mean, there used to be a thing called the Whigs. They don't exist anymore. Do you think that we wind up with a party that splits? And are there enough voters to sustain two parties on that side? Well, Joy, unfortunately, and your question is the right question. It's the existential question, really, for the party, and in a lot of cases, the Republic. Because remember, today, the Republican Party is the party of authoritarianism. Uh, Anybody else is the party of democracy. So that question we won't necessarily be able to answer until the 2022 midterms. I think if there is another Democratic gain election there, then yes, I think you will start to see the Republican Party splinter. Remember also one thing, going back to the polls. Today, only 10 days into the mission, Joe Biden already has a higher approval rating from the American public than Donald Trump had at any moment in these four years, which is why it is incumbent on the Democrats to put the pedal to the metal, be aggressive here and force these Republicans, like Sarah said, to make some of these difficult decisions. And I think you will see the fortunes change in the future. Yeah, it, it's going to be fascinating to watch. Buckle up, everybody. Sarah Longwell, uh, Fernand Amandi, congratulations again. And Sarah, welcome to the family. And up next, we're kicking off Black History Month with a look back at the origins of this very special celebration. Stay with us. Today is the first day of Black History Month, and we want to take a moment to discuss the origin story of the month itself. 
1926, historian and author Dr. Carter G. Woodson initiated the first Negro History Week, celebrate, uh, selecting a week in February that included the birthdays of Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln, two key figures who played prominent roles in a particular aspect of black history, the quest to end slavery. The era of the first Negro History Weeks was one of massive change for black Americans, many of whom had fled dire living conditions in the South for factory jobs in the North, where they'd soon find themselves in sometimes ugly battles for available blue-collar jobs with white ethnic immigrants from parts of Europe, like Italy and Ireland and Germany. The Harlem Renaissance was in full swing, and soon the Jazz Age would be too, creating an era of epic black cultural achievement. And yet, racism touched nearly every aspect of black life. And soon would come the anti-lynching movement that led to the civil rights movement and eventually the passage of the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts. President Gerald Ford officially recognized Black History Month in 1976, the year of America's bicentennial. Now, I was still in elementary school where Denver public schools would bus us to this downtown program that encouraged us to celebrate ourselves and multiculturalism once Black History Month was a thing. Before that, the place we got the most affirmation as black kids was often on Sesame Street and from black history icons like the Reverend Jesse Jackson. My clothes are different. My face is different. My hair is different. My hair is different. But I am. But I am. Somebody. Somebody. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes has arrived in IMAX. What a day! This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. I am somebody. A simple yet vital lesson. Which was also the crux of Sojourner Truth's message in her famous speech about black and women's rights in 1851. Much has changed since that speech in Akron, but so much has not. Our children are still dying. 60 years after Emmett Till's killers were acquitted by an all-white jury, Tamir Rice, an unarmed 12-year-old child, was killed by a white police officer. The drive to erase black history continues. A bill has been introduced in the Mississippi Senate that would withhold state funds from any school teaching from the 1619 Project. Lincoln and Douglas would roll in their graves. Black Americans are getting vaccinated at lower rates than white Americans. GOP voter suppression efforts are ramping up in Georgia and Arizona and more. And still, video after video of black men and women and children getting killed or abused by police. Progress isn't always linear. It can feel fragile and reversible. It's why we witnessed a white supremacist mob attacking our capital two weeks after the first black woman vice president took her oath and one day after Georgia elected its first black and Jewish senators. There is still so much work to do. Our need for an intensive self-examination when it comes to race didn't stop in November 2020 or November 2008 or in 1976. So let's honor the father of black history by calling for action well beyond February 28th while uplifting black excellence and black joy this day and the next. Happy Black History Month. 
And that's tonight's readout. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.